America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Joe Biden stumbles in Vietnam. New Mexico suspends the Second Amendment. And is Jim Garrity doing okay? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and the How the World Works podcast from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, we'll discuss your mental state later ah. in the podcast. Let's put that aside for the moment and talk about, speaking of mental states, Joe Biden's trip to Vietnam, and in particular, this very notable press conference. Some people say it's the worst he's been. I, I don't think that's, that's necessarily true. But it was bad, meandering, mumbly, incoherent, really long pause when he's trying to figure out uh, what his stage directions are in terms of calling on the next journalist and then the the press conference just kind of kind of waved off in the in the middle of one of these rambling answers just another indication of why basically three quarters of Americans think this guy is too old to serve another term what did you make of it yeah uh, any one of those items would have kind of made people's eyebrows perk up particularly the return of the infamous you're a lying dog-faced pony soldier who doesn't believe in global warming and you know kind of stuff um, or look, when he, when he closed it or at one point said he's going to take a nap, Mr. President, we've all been there. We all understand it. Uh, <laughs> I, I have, you know, from the very beginning pointed out that you look at the president's schedule, he very, almost never has an event before 10 o'clock in the morning. Very rarely has one in the afternoon, you know, noon beyond three, four in the afternoon. Once in a while he'll do the state of the union or something, but by and large, it looks like the president's got like maybe six of good hours that we can be in front of cameras. You know, he gets he gets jet lag on these trips. Lots of people get jet lag on trips. That's, that's okay. I get it. But when you you know when you're president of the United States and then you know Karine Jean Pierre is running around saying, ah, he has so much energy, I can't keep up with him. Um, if you're a forty something year old woman and you can't keep up with Joe Biden, please see a doctor immediately. Uh, and this was just you know like I heard somebody saying, oh, you know, the argument about Biden's age is like Hillary's but her emails. It's you know this 
non-issue or minor issue that's going to be elevated and you know means nothing in the you know compared to Trump and stuff. Well, the problem with Biden, we see him every day or every day he comes out. There's some further evidence of it. It's really weird for the president to announce I'm going to take a nap in the middle of a press conference. It's really weird. For him to, you know, constantly refer to how, ah, my staff says I'm not supposed to do that. Like he's, you know, like, why do we think the president is stage managed? Because he keeps telling us that he's stage managed, right? This is not, you know, some state secret here. Um, so it was bad. I, I also wrote in today's Morning Jolt a bit about the substance of it, which I think there was some serious criticisms there for, uh, there as well. But generally, the entire Democratic Party has pushed all of its chips to the middle of the table and said, we are betting that Joe Biden, who turns 81 in a couple of months, is going to be fine between now and Election Day. And that's a massive unsafe bet. Um, but I guess we'll see how it checks out. Yeah, no, th this is why I continue to believe that Trump, if he's a nominee, has some serious chance of, of winning the nomination. It's just Joe Biden's state is demonstrably awful. It's getting worse. Kind of that performance in Vietnam makes you wonder, assuming there are debates, how is he going to stand for 90 minutes and be coherent later at, at, at night in a potential contest with Donald Trump. Now, obviously, he, he wants Trump because Trump offers the best opportunity to make it all about Trump rather than the, the deteriorating incumbent president before our eyes. But as Jim says, this is a it's a big risk for Democrats. Well, I even rather wonder if there will be debates if Donald Trump is the nominee and Joe Biden is his party's nominee. Uh, it would certainly benefit Joe Biden to demonstrate that he has the capacity to get on stage and be, stand there for 90 minutes. There will be a lot of questions about that. But will he deign to do so if the pro former president is a convicted felon, is convicted by a jury of engaging in rape? Will he, will he use that as the opportunity to say, I won't shake your hand, sir, and just pass on it? I don't know. Um... But it's a live question. I almost want to hand over my entire time here to New York Times reporter Michael Shear, whose dispatch on Joe Biden's performance in Vietnam must be read to be believed. It is a pristine example of the kind of outright corruption, and it is corruption, that the press is engaged in in order to frame what we all see with our own two eyes. In three days, of the, this is his piece, three days of diplomacy, Joe Biden rallied leaders to help poor, finance poor nations, fortified a coalition backing Ukraine, struck a deal with Vietnam to counter Chinese aggression. But the president was hammered with a very different narrative as he got on his plane. It literally says conservative media outlets seized, which has become a cliche to demonstrate that Republicans notice something bad that reflects poorly <laughs> on Democrats. It's, quote, a pattern that infuriates the White House, where Mr. Biden's top aides believe that the stories about the president's age and health are stoked by his enemies in an effort to undermine his accomplishments. Only then do we get into the substance of what occurred on that stage, which, the begrudgingly note, is the president, quote, rambled into a John Wayne story. The president, quote, also struggled to read from note cards. He was played off stage like a bad Oscars speech. His press secretary cut him off midway, and only then does reporter Mr. Michael Shear say, still for any president, the performance at the news conference in Vietnam would not have ranked among his best. There's, <laughs> a, there's a phenomenon at work among mainstream media outlets and mainstream media reporters where they think they have to paper this over in order to advance a political objective. That is corrupt, and it's apparent it's evident they're not even making any effort to conceal it from their readers. So, Charlie, obviously feel free to take on anything about Biden's 
age or the the press conference, but also want to get you on this just extraordinary fabulism we see from President Biden just repeatedly. We saw it recording on Tuesday. Um, Yesterday was the uh, anniversary of September 11th. Biden wasn't there. He was in Alaska on his way back from this famous trip to Vietnam. And he talked about the day after the attack on September 11th, going to ground zero. And he, he always adds, you know, his great fabulous do, really convincing and compelling details and staring, as he said, staring into the gates of hell. And of course, he wasn't there that day. Yeah. Now it said that the press feels that it has to paper over Joe Biden's deficiencies. I think what's just as interesting is that it thinks that it can. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. He's on television all the time. His utterances are a matter of public record. His press conferences are recorded and disseminated. We can all see them. We all see him walk around or try to ride a bike or lie on the beach. We all see him give answers to questions. We all see him ramble his way through semi-prepared remarks and represent the United States abroad. There is no way, even with the press as a powerful intermediary force, of getting around the coverage that Americans can see with their own eyes. Of course, Americans think he's old and dishonest. He's old and dishonest. This is who he is. It's who he's always been. I find it utterly astonishing that the New York Times thinks that four paragraphs of fluff is going to obviate the substance of the press conference. I find it amazing that the talking point that went out this morning was that Joe Biden is not, in fact, old, and that it's not, in fact, a problem, and that he should be put more often in front of the public rather than less. The voting public does not very often do what I want, but in this case, it seems that people in it of all stripes are able to discern what we all know, which is that he's old and he is a fabulist. 69% of Democrats say that he's too old, 89% of Republicans, 77% of independents. It's one of the one unifying forces in our politics. On the fabrication side of things, this isn't new, but it has got worse. And he has, over time, lost whatever guile he brought to the table because he now makes all manner of claims that can be very easily checked. Some of his earlier fabrications involved his youth at a time where cameras were not ubiquitous. He hadn't yet written autobiographies. He hadn't been in the Senate for years. This one was about a moment in American history that was probably unparalleled in uh, the coverage of it. That is the days after September 11th. Of course, everyone knows where one of 100 US senators was on September 12th. But he can't help himself. And he can't help himself because he is a narcissist mediocrity who feels as if he is Forrest Gump, but without the intelligence deficiency. He honestly seems to think that at every point in American history, he was there. 
he played some massive role. <laughs> if it's the civil rights movement, he's there desegregating movie theaters and sitting at the lunch counters. Even though he was strongly against gay marriage, he and his dad were running around 1950s Scranton praising men for kissing each other in the streets. And now, of course, he was there on 9-11 staring into the wreckage. Well, he wasn't. We all know that he wasn't. And I don't think... Uh, that the press can paper over the cracks, even if, as Noah says, it feels compelled to try. So, Jim Garrity, ask a question to you. If Jill Biden takes Joe aside sometime here in the not-too-distant future and said, honey, you know, you run the race, you beat Trump, incredible service to the country, you've created this green energy future that's put, put the American economy on a fundamentally different trajectory and you, you, you've saved the planet, but it's a little, little too old. I think it's time for us to step aside. Who would be the strongest Democratic candidate to run against uh, presumably Donald Trump? I really want to reject the premise of the question. That's really <laughs> very hard. Like the idea that Jill Biden's going to be like, I've gotten really tired of this first lady thing. <laughs> Living, I, I, I don't like the public housing. I don't like going to, to uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Camp David every weekend or, or the Delaware Beach House. Really, really tough to believe that scenario. Um, and you're not asking who's most likely. You're asking who's the uh, best, right. the best politically. Um, I would look for any. I mean, maybe ideally a mid Midwestern Democrat, uh, but I think you know, something like a Mark Warner, somebody who's not going to scare the horses. Just, just somebody, boring. Uh, yeah, boring, competent, doesn't scare the horses, um, and you know keeps the suburbanites feeling okay. Yes, this is the you know I, I prefer Democrats to that maniac over on the other side. So are you, are you factoring in the uh, Kamala Harris into this equation? So could could you do a boring white guy if you've yes. rejected Kamala Harris? Yes, or, or that would be the that would be the safest, you know, the the most conservative small C uh, course of action. Although I guess you could say relatively capital C uh, conservative as well. But in other words, like don't come across as a bunch of liberal freaks, and you have a really good shot against Donald Trump, who will be his own worst enemy throughout all the way up to election day. No, because I think Donald Trump in particular can rely on and mobilize white working class voters who are not conservative, who do not endorse conservative policy prescriptions, uh, economic or foreign policy, and who respond particularly to people who come to where they live and mimic their affect and share their grievances, even superficially and performatively. And this is gonna sound weird. I'm gonna say Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom, he's at home on Fox News. He's happy to engage. He's a populist. He can channel that energy, even though it's all false. And yes, he'll be hit real hard on the COVID stuff. Yes, he'll be hit real hard on his record in the shabby state in which California finds itself. But he'll animate and mobilize every single Democratic voter whose enthusiasm is above a two or three. And I think he'll mute the enthusiasm for populist economic prescriptions among Donald Trump's voters in the upper Midwest. All right, so Charlie, we got two interesting sort of opposite polls here. We got boring Democrat or charismatic Democrat. Uh, out of those who are likely or would have a chance of being chosen if this scenario came to pass, I would pick Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania. 
who I think would be the sweet spot for the Democrats. If the Democrats could get over themselves, they would pick someone like Andy Bashir, the governor of Kentucky, because if you actually look at polling at the moment, what Americans seem to want, a conservative Democrat. That's the president Americans seem to want. It's not either of the uh, Republican or Democratic platforms, but he would never be chosen because as the governor of Kentucky, he's just too conservative. So uh, I, I think, you know, Josh Shapiro may well, if Biden were to lose this year or if the Democrats were to lose, I think Josh Shapiro is going to run in 2028. And I think that sort of candidate is going to be hard to beat. I don't know if he gets to the primary, though. So I'm going to be a little vase with my own question um, and not name a name, but I, I, I like sort of the I am drawn to the, the Jim Garrity answer, a Mark Warner type Someone who's boring, who's relatively moderate, and you just make the entire race about Donald Trump. The, the problem in the real world, of course, is, is boring people do not win uh, presidential nominations, at least not ordinarily. So with that, let's go to our first sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor advised funds, accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil and gas and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction, avoid capital gains tax and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pool trust, you can even generate a lifetime income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable gifts. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So, Noah, in other foreign news, we had this deal that came to light, extraordinarily enough, yesterday between the Biden administration and Iran. $6 billion of frozen Iranian assets will be released or semi-released for supposedly for food and medicine, and five hostages taken by Iran uh, will be released. I think one was already in house arrest and the other four are going to be transferred over to house arrest. The administration says that this is, um, you know, taking care of our people and, you know, no, no big deal here because this money is still uh, secured for being used for any nasty purposes by the Iranian regime. What do you make of it? So this deal has been floated publicly since at least March. It involves the unfreezing of roughly $6 billion in Iranian assets impounded by the South Korean government. And when it became something, a really live possibility in early August, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said this is not sanctions relief. Iran's, these are Iran's own funds. They're going to be transferred from restricted accounts, and they're monies that can be only used for humanitarian purposes, which is all that's permitted under our sanctions regime. And... Iran comes out and says, or the Iranian president in an interview with NBC News today, says, well, you know what? Money's actually pretty fungible, and we can do with it whatever <laughs> we want. 
and we're going to do with it whatever he's, he's we not want. wrong uh it's obvious it's a little insulting that this deal that was in the works for the better part of six months eight months has to be revealed on 9-11 it's of a piece with joe biden's belief desire to execute the iran uh, the withdrawal from afghanistan on september 11th doesn't really seem to understand the nuances of a uh, of this commemorative event because he tends to want to engage in concessions to terrorists on the day uh which is more than a little crass and and frustrating it is i would say and i've written this before that it's hot, it's it's difficult to judge one of these hostage negotiations from afar. It's one of the thorniest things an administration can engage in. It's not pleasant. Nobody's going to get what they want out of it. And the United States government should see to its people when they are taken hostage by evil regimes. Iran is an evil regime. Russia is an evil regime. But at the same time, we've established a precedent now over the course of the Biden administration with regards to Iran and Russia and how they just take Americans hostage and receive real concessions from the United States. Um, Brittany Grinier being traded for a notorious arms dealer and a, uh, an, a convicted assassin. Um, Iran getting $6 billion for taking four Americans prisoner. The reward structure for taking Americans hostage is pretty obvious and very lopsided. And this incentive structure that these regimes now have to take Americans hostage is very well established. So you, as an American, would be um, well advised to not travel to these regimes. You are bait, and you will be used to put your country in a disadvantageous position geopolitically. It's selfish of you to travel to these countries at this stage. But it's also reckless on the part of the Biden administration, I say, with some being conflicted a little bit, because I don't know how I would perform in these circumstances. But it's obvious that we've created a series of incentives to take Americans hostage and use them for all the maximum leverage that they're worth. And apparently Americans are worth a lot. Yeah, so Jim, we've talked about this before when these kind of cases come up. And I, I tend to be kind of uh, soft on them. I, I think it's, it's really hard when, when Americans are, are held not to, to give way and cup some sort of deal. You know, almost every, other, every American president has done it, obviously Ronald Reagan. Uh, himself did it, but this one sticks in my craw more because it's not trading one nasty person for an innocent person. It's it's really providing a material benefit to this um, regime, a massive material benefit to this regime. And I was talking to an old uh, Mideast hand uh, before we started recording, and his take actually was he, he argues that the prisoners are kind of incidental to the deal, that the deal is, is really more of a holding action. It's saying to the Iranians, okay, hold your horses on the enrichment, at least for the next year and a half, get us through uh, the election, then we can talk some more, and here's your, your $6 billion to try to get you uh, to do that. And, and this was a regime that was basically broke at the end of the Trump years and has steadily uh, reconstituted itself financially, through oil sales to China, and now this, this deal will be a big help as well. Because obviously, you know, as, as Noah correctly pointed out, you can only spend it on food and medicine, but that means that money you're spending on food and medicine now can be used for something else. Um, 
this is another demonstration that pretty much since the moment he took office, Joe Biden and the foreign policy team around him are just hell-bent on restoring the Iran deal in some form. And it seems like no matter how, you know, they keep extending that hand and the Iranians keep biting on it. The Iranians keep spitting on it. It's like there's no reaction that Iran can do to make the Biden team say, this is pointless. These guys are never going to be realistic about this. These guys are never going to be uh, dust, you know, uh, deal makers we can trust. Um, this is, you know, it, it is almost as if there's so much political capital and emotional investment in the Iran deal from the Obama administration that they will attempt to move heaven and earth to get that back into place. Um, I, I wrote very similar things when it was first proposed, the idea of the Victor boot for Brittany Griner trade, that everybody wants to see Americans come home. But when you do this, you are paying the Dane Geld. If somebody comes along and demands concessions for what was a nonsensical, trumped-up charge against an American citizen, a de facto kidnapping, right? The situation, you know, look, we, we've taken this American, we, we've charged them with crimes, and for those who, you know, this is an audio version, uh, I'm making air quotes as I say crimes. Um, you know, like, we're, we're going to do this and we're going to make you do this. We've seen this with, with going back with North Korea, back with the Clinton administration, Every autocratic regime on earth knows this is how you get the Americans to play ball. This is how you get the Americans to make concessions. You take an American citizen. It's better if it's a WNBA star, but really just about anybody will do. And you hold them in terrible conditions and you threaten to, you know, we've seen this with the Wall Street Journal reporter. They do this over and over again. And sooner or later, the administration, and it's frustrating, almost every administration has the same calculation. We want the short-term gain of the happy White House ceremony of the American coming home. And we'll deal with the consequences of this later. And every time you do this, you're rewarding the regime. They get what they want. They get, you know, to them, this makes sense. This is a good way of getting money, getting policy concessions, getting their people released. Hey, this is, you know, takes almost no effort on their part. There are always Americans walking around Iran or Russia or places like that. So, you know, every time this happens, people like me are like, no, this is not good. This is bad. You're paying the Dane Geld. You are rewarding bad behavior. You are creating incentives to get more Americans kidnapped. And we get, you know, we get painted as the jerks. Oh, you don't, you, don't you want to see Americans? Of course we want to see Americans come home. But if you do this, you're going to get more Americans kidnapped. But nobody ever wants to listen. And diplomatic genius Joe Biden always knows what he's doing. Charlie? And just to pile in on something that Jim said about this being an obsession of the Biden administration, it reminds me of when I first moved to America and I lived in Brooklyn. And there were people there who had an almost fanatical commitment to the building of bike lanes. That was what they wanted more than anything else. If you had said to them, you can get your bike lanes, but unfortunately, we're going to have to bring back slavery. They'd have taken the trade. <laughs> you meet these people as well in the pro-railway community. The thing they want in America is more railways. They don't quite know why. And if you ask so Charlie, what the problem I'd, is... I'd forgotten about your, your Brooklyn face. That's right. That's right. Your hipster Brooklyn face. Yeah, bike, bike lanes, I, I think, are, are uh, one of the, have just blighted... New York. Uh, it's, it's it's so dangerous. Not that it's always great crossing a, a street in, in New York City, but now you, you don't have just have to worry about the cars. You have to worry about the constant bikes zooming hither and yon like you're in Amsterdam or something. But uh, unfortunately, our sainted founder was an early advocate of bike lanes. But you see the same thing with trains. There are certain people in America on the internet, they're very upset we don't have enough trains. And when you say, what is the problem that adding more trains would solve? They say the lack of trains. It, that is the extent of the thought. They like trains, they want more trains. Whatever the question is, the answer is more trains. America is a problem because it doesn't have 
enough trains because what we need is more trains. It's self-evident. And I see this weird fanaticism in the Biden administration and so many progressives when it comes to an Iran deal of some sort. They're just desperate for an Iran deal. It has to be a deal with Iran that involves giving them cash. And I think it comes from a naivety and a belief that this is how the world works and that there's no real thing as evil and that people won't actually behave in underhanded ways and that America is not so much good as it is rich and that if we could just enter into a deal with Iran, everyone would be so overcome with emotion by the fact they've managed to arrive at an accommodation and money has changed hands, that they will save the day, unlike those evil people who think things like, you know, realpolitik and um, missiles and pressure and so on work. Because I've never heard a case for this that that I found even remotely persuasive and that didn't end up being circular. Well, why do we need an Iran deal? Because we don't have a deal with Iran. It also presupposes that the JCPOA would have prevented an Iranian breakout, which it wouldn't have. It might have delayed it pending inspections, which we never would have gotten sufficient inspections, but it only mothballed the enrichment facilities, the centrifuges, which would be coming online right about now. Jim Garrity, I ask a question to you. To the extent foreign policy plays a role in the 2024 election, and assuming Joe Biden is on the ballot, will his foreign policy help hurt him or really no effect? At this point, I would say hurt. Um, I think Americans vote in a kind of just a very broad sense of is the world a safer place than it was or is it a more dangerous place than it was? And I think things like the images of Afghanistan, uh, I think the rise of China, like in the last couple of years, Americans definitely picked up on this idea that America is, uh, that China is hostile and represents a ever-growing threat militarily, geopolitically, et cetera. Um, God forbid there's a terrorist attack between now and then. You know, I, I think... There will be a sense, it'll add, it'll add to the, look, Biden got reelected promising things would get back to normal and that, the you know, life does not feel like it's back to normal. It's primarily an economic sense, but I think that, you know, images of foreign policy chaos do not help. We're up to, what, four or five, uh, you know, uh, embassies evacuated so far? There's room for two or three more between now and election day. Noah? Uh, I don't have much to add to what Jim said, just a general sense among the electorate, I, insofar as Voters don't tend to vote on foreign policy at all, but if they have a, a general sense of precarity and uh, the notion that things have gone in the wrong direction over the last four years, it would cut against him. So, yes, I endorse Jim's assessment. Charlie? As Noah knows, I think as a general matter, since the end of the Cold War, Americans have been more dovish than hawkish, with the exception of the election after 9-11. But I think that Biden is so weak in his affect and the combination of what we saw in Afghanistan and the general sense that China has risen as a threat, which of course predated Biden by many years, but is coming to fruition during his presidency, will offset any attempt on his behalf to make it seem as if he managed to keep the world safe without being aggressive. So I think foreign policy is going to hurt Biden, although Noah's right. People don't vote on this usually as the main issue. So it's going to be just minor contribution. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think it will hurt. I don't think it'll be decisive. I think Afghanistan is the main thing. And also just the, the general sense, as Charlie correctly points out, just how weak this guy is. Also, I'm not sure how a year or so from now Ukraine will be uh, playing politically. I, I just picked up this book I had on my shelf of forever, uh, just this morning, actually, called The Allure of Battle. And this is military historian, and this kind of set a light bulb off my head about Ukraine, making the case that, that we we love battles and we love decisive battles. But the fact is, in modern warfare, very often what's supposed to be the decisive battle is not really decisive. And um, warfare is overwhelmingly a very unromantic battle of attrition and endurance. And I, I think that's what we're we're, we're seeing happen in uh, Ukraine with the, the initial Russian assault that they thought would be decisive having failed, and then the U- Ukrainian um, push to, to gain a l- large parts of its territory back initially in that first year kind of stalled out, and this counteroffensive hasn't necessarily gone great either, and it looks like we're just in for attrition, and I'm not sure how patient people will be with that. But regardless, I think foreign policy will be a net negative for President Biden. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode. As listeners of National Review Podcast, you already have all of the riveting political commentary and news analysis you need. But good news, there's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our old friend Kevin Williamson offering a fresh perspective on something we all do, work to make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, It's a look at how the world actually works. Each episode, Kevin has an intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy and social lives, and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash podcast to find the latest episodes of the show. Please check out. It out. So, Charlie, you have been on one of your uh, classic um, rip-roaring um, uh, rants, for, for lack of a, a better word, a well-deserved rant and more thoughtful and reasonable than the average rant, but about the governor of New Mexico presuming to suspend the right to, if I'm not mistaken, carry, is that right? The right yeah. to bear arms for for 30 days. Go. Have at it. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit earlier about Joe Biden's propensity to insert himself into historical events and assume they must have been in some way all about him. At the risk of doing that myself, if the governor of New Mexico had sat down with her advisors and her lawyers and contrived an executive order that would annoy me, she could have done no better than the one she issued last week, because it was related to a topic I write about a great deal, that being the right to keep and bear arms. It was executed at the expense of the legislature and the federal constitution, and she said it wasn't going to work. So she hit the trifecta there. (laughs) This has obviously been picked up in gun rights communities, and it should have been, because it's rational for people who are directly affected or even indirectly affected to focus more on a particular political story than those who are unaffected. But really, everyone should be outraged by this, irrespective of their view 
on the Second Amendment because what we saw here was an executive in a state usurping the will of the legislature and the constitution that binds her and saying explicitly, not implicitly, but explicitly that her oath of office is not absolute, which of course it is. What she's done here is in response to what she considers to be an emergency, which is rising crime, especially crime committed with firearms in Albuquerque in New Mexico, taken it upon herself to suspend the state's open and concealed carry rules in the county in which Albuquerque sits for 30 days. How? She never says. There's no provision in the law that allows the governor to do this. There is no emergency or mechanism to declare an emergency of this sort. There's no constitutional provision that facilitates this, and the federal constitution explicitly prohibits it. Why has she done it? She said to send a message. To who? Not the criminal. She admitted at her press conference they're not going to follow the law. To everyone else. So she's going to send a message to the people who aren't the problem, the people who don't commit the crime. People who, on average, as data out of Florida and Texas has shown, commit crimes at seven times lower rate than the cops. This is an example of tyranny in the way that James Madison uses the word throughout the Federalist Papers and in his speeches before Congress when introducing the Bill of Rights. This is an executive in the United States taking upon herself the legislative, executive, and judicial roles, taking all the power, rolling it up into a little ball, and storing it in a safe with her name on it, to which she alone has access. This is exactly what our system is set up to prevent. Again, forget for a moment that this is about guns. I know that there are people out there who want more gun control. That's fine. We can have that argument. But this is no more acceptable because it's guns than it would be if it were the First Amendment or if it were unreasonable search and seizures or imprisonment without trials or excessive fines and cruel and unusual punishment. This is a right, whether people like it or not. It's a right that's recognized federally. It's a right that's recognized in the New Mexico Constitution. It's a right that is allowed for and uh, provided uh, for in scope and limit in New Mexico by statute after a debate within the legislature. And she just obviated it. She said, there's an emergency. We're getting rid of it for 30 days. This cannot stand. This is a test of the rule of law that is not dissimilar in type, although, of course, it is in scale, from what happened after the 2020 election when Donald Trump tried to uh, cheat his way back into office. And if it is allowed to stand, you are going to see all manner of horrible copycat attempts from left and from right in state after state across the country and the collapse of the rule of law. It has to go. It has to be struck down very, very quickly and universally repudiated by the electorate. So, Jim, this is irritating. We've talked about it before. When Republicans cross the bounds, uh, we, we, we call them on it when we think they they really have you know when trump diverted military funding to the wall there's a colorable legal case that this was okay but it obviously against the spirit of the system we called them out on it at least 10 republicans actually voted against trump doing this even though they they supported more border funding you know when trump was trying to get mike pence to violate the the constitution we called them out on it we're still calling them out on it to this very day, but it just when when Democrats do this sort of thing, the the folks to the left of center do 
basically never say, oh, this is a great policy. I wish it it could happen, uh, but this isn't the way to do it. So the people who talk about process and norms with with such uh, righteousness and conviction when it involves a Republican, especially Donald Trump, fall mute when just for the sake of consistency or, or principle, they have to call out their own side. Yeah, functionally and sometimes literally, the overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party, including its office holders, who begin their terms by taking an oath in office, the oath of office to protect, pretend, <laughs> pretend, protect and defend the Constitution. I guess you could say pretend fits the, it, that's, that's the version they use. Freudian slip. Uh, yeah. Um, look, they, they, they see the Constitution as suggestions. Some of, to, some to of be, your best commentary in this podcast is Freudian, or Freudian slips, Jim. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't see me, this would be this would be even less. It wouldn't be nearly as funny. Um, so, look, you know, in the end, the Democratic Party doesn't really believe in the Constitution, and that they violate their oaths automatically. In the end, they don't really believe in the Second Amendment. They don't always believe in the First Amendment, or they believe it in, in you know far-reaching restrictions. Look, the other thing is, I, I, I'm, I, I can't add much to what Charlie said, but I just want to observe, like, we, we, you know, think of the context. We live in an era of a great deal of political anger, right? Even rage, paranoia, suspicion, right? There are a lot of people out there who believe the government is out to get them. They believe that they're being targeted by the government because they own guns. They believe they're being targeted for the government because they speak out. They know the government is, you know, applying great pressure on social media companies, about what can and cannot be said in what appears to be a rather, you know, in spirit, a violation of the First Amendment, if not an outright little. So several courts have held it that way. Um, they believe that the government wants to criminalize them and their actions for that are con- protected by the Constitution, while at the same time, they don't want to prosecute violent criminals in quite a few major cities. Now, against this background, right, you know, here's the thing. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. I think you have to look at that and say, well, that's really bad, right? This, you know, if, you, if this gets worse, you're going to have more Cesar Sayox. You're going to have more nutjobs mailing pipe bombs to people because they think they're fighting a political revolution. So in this circumstance, you can either be the kind of person who tries to pour gasoline on the fire or you can try to be the kind of person who tries to pour water on the fire, right? You pour water on the fire by being open, direct, being clear about what you're doing, not using euphemisms. Uh, not doing things in the shadows of, you know, secret emails to the federal government, to social media companies to say, you shouldn't allow people to say this. And you follow the Constitution. And you don't just decide, I've decided there's an emergency. And I've decided the Constitution doesn't, my oath to the Constitution has limits. And that if I feel like it, I can suspend certain rights of the people. Never mind the fact that it violates the New Mexico Constitution. Never mind that it violates the U.S. Constitution. The governor of New Mexico is taking a bad situation and making it worse. And I think the you know, because I think she still, I don't know whether she thinks it'll build, give her national attention. I don't know whether she thinks this is a good stunt, good news cycle. Either way, she is taking a bad situation and making it significantly worse. And Charlie is absolutely right. There needs to be a rebuke to this, a full-throated, full-spectrum rebuke as soon as possible, or else we're going to get more governors who think that the U.S. Constitution is just a set of suggestions they can ignore uh, and, uh, upon their whims. Noah? There's an exceptionally annoying feature of our modern political debate dynamic that occurs when conservatives notice something and object to it. And then they bring this up and progressives say, well, that's not happening. And when you present incontrovertible evidence that it is in fact happening, it goes immediately, doesn't skip a beat from, 
well, that's not happening to, okay, it's actually good that that's happening. Yeah, gas stoves. Oh, you can you can run down the list. It's it, it's it really is it, to do. It would be a disservice to all the examples to list some. But here's one. Charlie said there was no mechanism by which Governor Grisham uh, uh, sought this extra constitutional measure. Well, there was. She declared a public health emergency. She said the full scope of emergency powers in this memo allowed her to treat gun violence and drug use as a public health, a matter of public health importance, and therefore suspend constitutional protections because it's an emergency. We've seen this before. The Biden administration earlier this year decided that, well, you know, we can actually probably get around the Dobbs ruling by declaring abortion access a public health emergency. That frees up a lot of opportunities for us to contravene the social covenants in these states that want to restrict abortion access. The White House has decided that Title um, six of the Civil Rights Act authorizes it to create environmental justice uh, mechanisms that treat racism as a public health issue, frees up a lot of tax dollars to do whatever you want with it, just because it's a public health issue. Likewise, maternity, uh, maternity mortality uh, and other health inequities deemed by Democratic lawmakers at the state level a public health crisis, which allows them more freedom of action. This is a fig leaf. It's just a justification to do whatever they want to do. And it was, and you can't help them, you can't blame them rather from noticing that the pandemic opened up a lot of opportunities that Democrats used to pursue social engineering that was otherwise uh, out of reach because there was no legislative appetite for that sort of thing. Once that was gone and you could do whatever you want under the guise of an emergency, they took it and they ran with it. And that precedent is still with us and it's very tempting and very attractive for a particular disposition that sees the state as the remedy for a lot of our social problems. It's going to be with us for a very long time, and it's going to be pursued, as Charlie said, by many more ne'er-do-wells in state houses and, executive and governor's mansions, unless there is a real profound rebuke at the end of this. Can, can I just add one thing? The reason this represents an escalation, though, is that although the governor of New Mexico did use the words public health emergency. There was no fig leaf beyond that. With Joe Biden, whether it was the student loan debacle or the eviction moratorium, and in state after state after state during COVID, there was at least an attempt to contrive a legal argument there is an emergency, this statute contains this provision, therefore. But the governor of New Mexico doesn't do that. She just says, I think it's an emergency, therefore. She doesn't say, I think it's an emergency, and the statute that the legislature passed that determines the rules for concealed and open carry contains a provision within it that allows emergencies to change the substance. None of that. She just said it. She just came out and said, I am doing this. And that is a completely free-floating order that is new in our politics. I don't think I've ever heard a politician, certainly since I lived in the United States, say that brazenly, I've decided it's an emergency, so I'm suspending a constitutional right. So, Charlie, I'll stick with you for the exit question, a momentous exit question. In your view, are norms important? And if so, do you have hope? For preserving them? 
Well, I think norms are important. I think the law is even more important. That's why we write it down. Norms can evolve. Laws can't or shouldn't. You want some interplay between the two. And hopefully you want a norm that is defensive of the rule of law. But yeah, I I, I, I offer you a pedantic answer on that, Rich, just because I want to make it clear that this is not a violation of norms. This is not some mm-hmm. tradition right. that she has found a loophole in or decided to jettison. <laughs> She's in flagrant violation of the law that she took an oath to uphold. But yes, norms are important. Important laws are more so, both are necessary. Jim? I don't have much to add to what Charlie said. So do you um, have hope Hope for preserving norms? I think it depends on how the, the reaction to this goes. Uh, if there is a metaphorical smackdown, ideally, uh, you know, not just coming from Republicans, but left, right, and center, everybody's like, no, no, you don't just get to unilaterally declare that part of the Constitution doesn't apply, then we, we nip it in the bud and other governors learn the lesson and we don't have a lot of copycats. Um, but it, it depends. At this point, it's not happening. So I suspect you'll probably see more, uh, probably more from more Democratic governors who will try similar stunts in other states. Noah? Uh, yeah, again, I don't have much to add except that norms are conventions and conventions evolve in ways that laws do not because they're written down and codified. And uh, that we're rapidly seeing the establishment of a new convention, a new norm, one that is uh, far less uh, desirable from our perspective. So the word norms, at least for a lot of people, especially on the right, has been made into a joke by the way it's been wielded by various hypocrites and cretins on the other side. Notwithstanding that, norms are important. They are, uh, as, as um, Charlie articulated very well, you want your norms to protect uh, the law and, and not to test the, the limits. Uh, we, though, are going down uh, this road uh, on both sides. So I, I'm not particularly hopeful for protecting norms as they've uh, existed for a long time prior to this moment in our politics. On that note, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription at nationalreview.com. You're a way to get around our metered paywall. Legitimately, you don't have to engage in any subterfuge or underhanded tactics. You just uh, sign up, log in. You can read whatever you want. You also can comment on articles and blog posts if that floats to your boat. And you also, again, if you're signed in, you got to be signed in. You see about 90% fewer ads. I know we hear the complaints. The ads can be annoying. They can be obnoxious. They can be distracting. But we only run the ads because we need to make a little revenue on the, our, our content at nationalreview.com. And if you're giving, that, uh, giving us that, that little bit of revenue out of, out of your pocket, there's no reason for us to annoy you with those ads. So they disappear as if by magic. And then, of course, the most fundamental reason to sign up for NR Plus is it's a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you value what, I, what we do, if you are at National Review every day, every other day, or trying to be at National Review every day or every other day, just uh, give in and pay a little bit. We It's not hugely expensive. We have great uh, first-time discounts running at any given moment. So please, today, tomorrow, next week, whenever, not going to be picky about the timing, please sign up and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. Plus. So I can't let this podcast go without at least touching a little bit on the Republican 2024 race. So I'm calling an audible and doing a tack-on exit 
question to you first, Jim Garrity. Assuming you saw the clips of Trump and DeSantis and Hutchinson and Bergeron at the Iowa-Iowa State game, and if you didn't, I can describe them for you, did they change at all your view of what's happening in the Republican race and how strong Donald Trump is in that race? Well, first of all, I mean, look, as exciting as last night was, all day long on Saturday, my phone was blowing up with people saying, did you see Doug Burgum at the Iowa, Iowa State game? <laughs> it was, you know, get, get yourself in front of a TV, find it on YouTube. You do not want to miss this. Um, no, someone called me yesterday and said, hey, did you see Trump that doing that? And this wise person said that, wow, this is a phenomenon. Uh, I've, you know, I, on the one hand, I'm not surprised. Donald Trump is a celebrity. He, he had a hundred, near 100% name recognition before he started running. And anywhere he goes, anybody who likes Trump will, will run barefoot over broken glass like John McClain if they have to, to go see him, shake his hand, touch him. Uh, there really is absolute idol hero worship at, at, at state here. So I'm not that surprised by it. Um, look, I, you know, at least half the Republican Party is hell-bent that this guy is going to be the nominee. They're not interested in hearing arguments in favor of Ron DeSantis or any other option. And so, or even Doug Burgum, believe it or not. And uh, that's that's the state of things. Uh, it's you know, a little frustrating, but... Uh, you know, the people are, are making their thoughts clear. So, Noah, you, you are, uh, follow politics obsessively, but there's a chance you missed this because it interacted with football. So th that, that may have uh, <laughs> meant you, you totally missed it. Rich, you might be surprised. I don't think you won't be, will be surprised to know that I'm going to have to lean on your description of these events in order to weigh in on them. So I'll probably just end up ratifying whatever your impression was. Yeah, um, so I'll no, I'll jump I'll jump ahead and then, then we can go to, to Charlie in case Noah you want to uh, uh, comment on on my description. Comment on commentary. That's what I'm. Yeah. So so Trump he, he's at this game and and he waves to at one point he's at a portal you know um, w waving to the stadium in general and they're they're mixed cheers and boos, but other than that like there's a corridor where I assume people knew he'd have to go down to reach his uh, luxury box, and it was just. Wall-to-wall, -wall, adoring, adoring people. I mean, just an extraordinary jam-packed crowd that was just thrilled. I mean, this is the, the, one of the biggest things that's ever happened to these people. They're in proximity to this guy. He visits a fraternity. The fraternity brothers are over the moon. He opens the, the front door of the fraternity. Hundreds of people out there for him. He's flipping burgers, surrounded by people. So it's just... I've had these occasional moments, and I end up uh, repressing them, maybe somewhat wishfully. But you know, I look at this like, how you beat it? You know, the non-Trump Republicans were running political candidates against a phenomenon, and how is a, a mere candidate going to beat a phenomenon? You know, it's it's like my apologies, Charlie. You know, he's like the Beatles, and people running against him are like Rick Springfield. And I don't care how talented Rick Springfield is, or or uh, how great his tour is. How is he going to match the Beatles? How are you going to match? Uh, the Beatles. So that, that's that's uh, that's what it was like. No, and that's my impression. I don't know whether you have any anything to add. I don't know if I do. I, I think that's frankly uh, a good assessment of the state of play at this point. He is, however, as Jim said, a celebrity, and what you're talking about is a little bit of selection bias insofar as you have to drag yourself there to these places, unless you live in the fraternity house. Uh, so we are talking about Donald Trump's crowd because they are crowd that came out for. Donald Trump. Um, 
the the notion here that Republicans are going to turn out and vote in the same way as they would turn out for a concert is a bit of a co- apples oranges comparison. Um, and there's a lot of things to be said for apples and oranges. They're both fruit. But uh, it's not entirely the same thing. So I'd be cautious about prejudging that. Yeah, no, uh, that was but, but but all ex- you know, all ex- our experience suggests your your assessment is the right one. Yeah, so Charlie, it strikes me it'll just have to be so many people said in 2020, and this is why so many people think the election was stolen still, right? It was like, I saw the Trump signs, I, I saw the Trump crowds, and I, then I saw Biden, you know, uh, gingerly making his way into a circle of 15 people at one of his campaign events, and I saw no Biden signs, how could he win? So if DeSantis or someone trips Trump up in Iowa, it, it feels to me it's going to have to be sort of like that. <laughs> it's like a rational calculation on the part of people rather than a uh, expression of enthusiasm. If you look at the footage from that game, and I know Noah watched every single moment and (laughs) broke down all the plays as well, you see the two campaign strategies. Trump arrived. His mere arrival caused a ruckus, like the Beatles at Idlewild. And then he met with some people who were primed to like him, but of whom there are a great many. And then he went up into an executive suite and stood behind glass for the rest of the game. And DeSantis arrived to less fanfare, but went out and sat in the bleachers and talked to people throughout the game, including, I think, the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. Yeah, I think he was sitting with her. Right. I don't know which will prevail. I suspect it will be Trump on balance. But those are the two strategies. DeSantis's approach in Iowa is to keep going there, keep grinding it out, and to stage the best ground game any presidential primary candidate has ever staged. And Trump's approach is to be a world-beating, world-historic celebrity, to parachute in occasionally to adoring crowds, and then to get back into his executive suite or private jet and go home. And I don't know which one uh, is going to to win. As I say, I suspect it will be Trump. But they are very different approaches. And we'll learn quite a lot about American politics when we find out. All right, so let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim, again, we talked about your mental and emotional state. Uh, at the top of this podcast, it's because, I mean, if the scriptwriter wrote this, he's like, I'm going to plot out the season, jet season, how it's going to go for you, and, and here's the script, and, and, and he delivered it with Aaron Rodgers going down with perhaps a season-ending injury on the first drive of the first game, you'd say no. At least at least everyone else, maybe besides you, Jim, because you made reference when I asked you if you're excited about the... Jet season, I forget whether it was on air or off air. You're like, yeah, you know, an anvil hasn't fallen on Aaron Rodgers' head yet, but an anvil fell on his head, metaphorically, last night. So how did you, how did you take it? That dang Acme Corporation. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, on, on yesterday's Three Martini Lunch podcast, I said to Greg, look, I, you know, I'm just excited for the start of the season. Yeah, for all we know, Aaron Rodgers could get injured in the first game. And of course he was, after four plays and all that stuff. No, if you told me, that was going to happen, uh, then I expect I'd wake up miserable. But the Jets somehow managed to figure out how to beat a very good Buffalo team after that. Like the, the metaphor I keep using is you guys have all seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
where the poor enslaved guy has his heart ripped out of his chest. It beats in front of his eyes a few hands. Mola Ram cackles. They lower the guy into lava, and the in his hand, the, the uh, heart bursts into flame until his entire body and soul are destroyed. Well, last night's injury to Aaron Rodgers was slightly, <laughs> slightly worse than that, uh, emotionally and physically. And, uh, you know, somehow the Jets figured out a way to pull it together and win. The defense played like a level of a Super Bowl contender. The running game was very solid. Special teams came through. And Zach Wilson was there uh, in uniform and did not botch the game for them. So, look, I actually feel kind of inspired by the way the team managed to overcome this huge injury. Uh, as Jets fans, we're kind of used to bitter, you know, disappointment and shocking, you know, twists of fate going against us. And uh, hey, you know, for I, look, I think last last night was an amazing season, and I'm already looking forward to next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a Bill Buckley line about uh, how going to a, a Wagner opera, you know, there are highs and lows and deaths and heart wrenching romance and and. Uh, uh, hours of this drama, and then you looked at your watch, and 15 minutes had had elapsed. <laughs> so, Charlie, sticking with with football, because we're not going to get any football from from Noah. Clearly, <laughs> you traveled, you made the trek, and this is always risky as a sports fan going going on the road to see your team because it might not work out, and then you you get that kind of crushed, sick feeling in your your stomach, and you got to travel all the way home late. But you went out to Indianapolis, as you forecast for us last week to see the Jaguars play and despite uh, some nervous making moments it worked out for you and your team it did it's slightly less risky than when your quarterback's Ryan Tannehill no. um, <laughs> had to get one in come on had to get one in <laughs> no it worked out they did make it difficult really they they piled on two touchdowns in the last five minutes they gave up the most bizarre touchdown I've ever seen a sort of time delayed scoop and score which if you haven't seen it yet you should go look it up on YouTube it was classic opening day rookie catastrophe but uh, overall they look quite good and I, I sat in the stadium I was with my my friends here from Jacksonville I was very nervous throughout and then we left the stadium saying oh that was a close one which it was but when we got back we thought well hang on we went on opening day to indianapolis where we never win on the road and won by 10 points if you had told me that before the game i mean i would have said yeah i'll take it i'll take it so it was a great trip and of course obligatory trip to st elmo's steakhouse which if you're ever in indianapolis you have to visit absolutely fantastic so Noah, while your colleagues are wasting their time with football, you are productively clearing brush. Well, I wasn't. Yes, and to your premise, yes, I was doing something far more fun, yard work. Um, but <laughs> I, I wasn't. My neighbor was. I have at the edge of my property just impenetrable thicket. And I've tried to d dig into it to try to reclaim some of this land and use like a chainsaw. And it's so you have to cut it. You have to carve it like a turkey. It's so thick, and it's just, it cannot be done. So I've been talking, and I've discovered recently, the last couple of months, a pristine apple tree on my property. It's the biggest apple tree I've ever seen. It's 40 feet high. It's full of apples, but it's like 30 feet deep in the brush. So my neighbor comes over the other day, and he's got a giant John Deere front-end loader and just makes real short work of this heather, this moor. And just rips right into it and clears out maybe a quarter acre of property now that I that I have. 
But the problem is, is that when you have all that root mass and it's just been there for years, it's it's all that's keeping the soil together. <laughs> I didn't really think this through. So now I go down in there and I'm like, oh, I'm going to grass this up and everything. And I just sink probably six inches deep into just the, the most, uh, just pure mud, just impenetrable mud. So I have now all this land that I've reclaimed, but it's pretty useless. But at the very least, I have my apple tree. So long-time listeners of the podcast will know I'm a summer guy. I pretty much begin to getting, getting depressed on June 21st when the days start getting shorter. But I've actually warmed up over the last year or so, two seasons, and I've kind of uh, enjoyed uh, early uh, fall here. You know, the sound of the bugs is a little quieter uh, the, the mornings are nice and cool. The, the evenings has been kind of a hotter early fall than usual in the Northeast. Maybe that plays into it a little bit. I have not had to don a sweater yet and have not yet ordered any pumpkin flavored drinks with that. It's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Well, a lot of good, fun, strong options this week, but, uh, I'm going to go with our friend Charlie's Recent update on the issue of Biden and his age with the typically subtle headline, Old Joe, Old Biden, parentheses, old, is too old to be president, parentheses, he's old. Um, It is, you know, not just beating you over the head with the uh, clear point. Uh, It addresses an argument from our old friend Mona Charan, who says that there's nothing wrong with Biden and the public's doing him a disservice, the president's team is doing the public a disservice by keeping Biden away from the cameras. I'm pretty sure that's not the case because if they really thought, if Biden, like, there's this theory that, oh, he looks really old and crotchety and bad when we can see him. But the moment he goes behind those doors to the White House, Joe Biden is doing cartwheels. He's doing great. He's full of energy. You know, Kareem Jean-Pierre can't keep up with him. No, no, no. Um, Charlie takes this to task and dismantles it as only he can. Everybody should check it out. Another argument, uh, different but kind of related, is, is Morning Joe, after the, the trip over the sandbag, um, blamed the White House staff for just not clearing every single potential obstacle in the, the president's way, which we, we all know White, White House staffs always have to worry about. The, without the uh, sandbag, that. there would have been a loose wire. Yeah, exactly. Noah, what's your pick? It's Charlie Day. Uh, I am going with... Uh, Charles C.W. Cooks, why not arrest Governor Lujan Grisham? Um, he makes the point that, look, the right has a problem now with Lujan Grisham. She's violating the Constitution, so what are we going to do? Why sh- We should probably just summarily arrest her, gag her without court order, um, you know, tax her at 100% rate, really you know, profoundly punish her without any due process. But why don't we do that? Well, because there's a constitution, there are laws, there are rules we have to follow, which the governor doesn't seem inclined to do. And that thought experiment might clarify for those who think that the, the problem is such that we have to just clear away the, the dead wood of all our legal conventions in order to address the problem that might help them understand why we don't do that sort of thing. Charlie. Well, I'm going to repay everyone being nice to me by endorsing a disagreement with our editorial. Um, which Jack Butler offered in the corner. I really agree with one line in particular. We had an editorial discussing Mike Pence's discussion of populism. There was a line in it that said, there's nothing inherently populist about Trump's conduct after the 2020 election, which had to do with his character flaws, not any political ideology. I think on balance, I agree with Jack Butler. I, I think it 
is much more likely that that would happen with a populist movement that a uh, organization and a, a vibe that was anti-establishment is is probably more likely to uh, challenge an election and and stage a riot than one that is is hewing to the rules. So I I thought it was a, a good dissent from a debate that's going to rage probably in conservative circles for the next decade. So my pick is from our friend the Dominator Dominic Pino, a book review of Tyranny Inc. by Saurabh. Amari. And this is really a perfect assignment if you want a critic of Saurabh's argument, who is careful and extremely well-informed to completely dismantle Amari's argument. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. Is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Waterstone and CEI. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.